0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Quoting uh, John DeBelbis' recent article in Utah State uh, Magazine, um, it's a blue speck from space, helps you find your place on Google Maps. Uh, It flashes like a beacon to millions of birds on migratory marathons. It's a sea in the sand that shimmers lavender in one glance and pale turquoise in another. A place you can go for an entire day without seeing a single soul, yet where two million people live within an hour's drive. It's a lake of paradoxes, said historian Dale Morgan. Liquid lies, said author Terry Tempest Williams. The salty truth, however, is that the Great Salt Lake, the largest saline lake in the Western Hemisphere, is drying up. We're going to talk about the Great Salt Lake with Wayne Wurtzbaugh, uh, who is uh, Professor Emeritus of Watershed Sciences at uh, Utah State University. Professor Wurtzbaugh, thanks for coming in.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: you spent... Decades studying the Great Salt Lake. Yeah, I've
1: studied other systems as well, but one of the first systems I I studied when I came here in 1983 was was the Great Salt Lake. And I've been at it on and off ever since. And recently it's been the major focus of my research.
0: So this is is the biggest saline lake in the Western uh, Hemisphere. How unusual are these large saline lakes?
1: Yeah, we think of them as very unusual uh, because we often go recreate at freshwater bodies. But uh, on surface area-wise for around the world, they are about 21% of the inland waters. Now, a lot of that's the Caspian Sea, a huge lake, really, in Central Asia. But there's a lot of large lakes. We have them up in Oregon, out in California, I worked at one in northern Argentina called Mar Chiquita, which rivals Great Salt Lake in size. And then particularly in, in Central Asia, the one people know a lot about or have heard of is the Aral Sea that's had problems similar to what the Great Salt Lake's experiencing. So there's a lot of these around, and so they're not that unusual.
0: Um, I, I guess that maybe hurts our pride a little bit, but we but it, it, is, <laughs> it is a very unique, you know, we – um sort of makes utah in a way right and yeah gives I mean, salt lake city its name and you know it's uh, it's definitely uh point of pride
1: yeah exactly and it you know be particularly because we're located the population centers kind of surround great salt lake it's very dominant in how, how we think about the state and as you say the name of the capital and so forth
0: is that unusual to have, to have a, a bunch of population around a lake like it is here.
1: Yeah, that that is fairly unusual. Um, a, a lot these saline lakes are in arid regions usually, and you often don't have big population centers. Uh, Great Salt Lake with our mountains that are water catchers, freshwater catchers, give us a possibility to to live here and have a, a freshwater supply. But a lot of uh, saline lakes don't have that much fresh water around, so. Uh, uh, yeah, we're somewhat unusual ex- circumstance.
0: So the, the the lake apparently is shrinking. Uh, maybe give us some context. How but this is a remnant of Lake Bonneville. So
1: yeah, so we, eons ago is very big. Yeah, we talk about climate change, and so if we look at long time scales, we have uh, Lake Bonneville fifteen thousand years ago at the end of Little Ice Age, and uh, covered a good share of northern Utah. Uh, where we're sitting for this interview right now and all the major campuses uh were on the shore, you know the shoreline of Lake Bonneville, so we had a huge system and and the lake on the long term has has been shrinking uh in a way since then uh but since the pioneers arrived in eighteen fifties and started developing water resources, diverting it primarily for agriculture, but all the uses we put it to industry household uses, and all that all that water or a lot of that water that gets diverted uh, evaporates and hence never reaches the Great Salt Lake. And not that long ago, people would say, uh, well, any water that reaches the Great Salt Lake is wasted water because once it becomes salty, we can't use it for agriculture or we can't drink it anymore. But the thinking on that has changed a lot in recent decades since I've been here uh, and people recognizing the value of the Great Salt Lake for uh, birds and uh, uh, brine shrimp industry, other uses. And, and now particularly we're worried about health effects if we expose a lot of that lake bed and, and get more dust storms.
0: Uh, so uh, I want to talk about uh, quantities. So how, in recent years, how much has the lake shrunk?
1: Yeah, we, the Division of wild uh, Water Resources, uh, particularly a person named Craig Miller, Uh, Did some modeling and estimated, you know, if if we have these many acres of alfalfa and we have this many acres of lawn and we know the evaporation rates for that, how much water is being lost. And and so uh, we estimate that about 40 percent of the river inflow is now being diverted. Now, that's been increasing over the decades and since the pioneers arrived. And that uh, 40% loss has caused the lake to shrink uh, about well, close to 50%, both in terms of volume and and lake area. So we've had a, a very large impact on on the system already. Uh We're not in the situation of the Aral Sea in Central Asia, where you know, 90% of it's been dried up, or Lake Ermea, a lake in Iran, similarly about 90% has been dried up. Uh, we're not we're not there yet, but we're kind of headed that direction as we talk about more and more water development.
0: So fifty percent—that's still that's that's—I um, mean, shocking to me. I didn't know it's fifty percent. You made a reference to the Aral Sea a couple times. Um, tell me about that. I've I've seen the pictures before and after. It's it's just shocking.
1: Yeah. So the Aral Sea was huge, and and maybe I don't know the actual value of twenty. Thirty times the size of the Great Salt Lake, so a really huge system. Uh, and in the '50s and '60s, the Soviet Union started development of the water, the rivers flowing into the lake for uh, agriculture irrigation projects, uh, and uh, they pretty much dried up almost all of the lake. Uh, the the shape of the lake basin, the morphometry, we say it was such that they were able to build a a dam and constrict and save about five or 10 percent of the Aral Sea Uh, but the rest has pretty much dried up in wet years you have you know some flooding in there and you get some water in the old lake bed but as a consequence of all that drying there's been massive dust storms uh, health problems for people you know hundreds of miles away as these dust storms transport uh, things very far
0: as we go along, we'll talk about that, and there worries about that here in Utah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, you, you see the photographs, you know, old ships uh, right. stranded they, just just sitting there on a on a dry lake bed now.
1: Yeah. The Aral Sea was what we call hyposaline. It's not as salty as the Great Salt Lake. And uh, it had a low enough salinity that it had uh, a thriving fishery. Uh, for you know, with ocean-going type ships out there uh, you know, harvesting the fish, uh, and as the lake dried up, uh, that those fisheries were lost, and the remnants are those ships on the shoreline that that are some of the classic photographs that you see in National Geographics and yeah. and other places. A very graphic reminder of you know, of what uh, water development did to that lake. So,
0: uh, I mean, I think in, in today's modern age, we do have a general sense of, uh, you know, with engineering and uh, humans' effect on, on nature can be very great, but sometimes I think we push it aside and we, we think, well, Mother Nature's so powerful. But the RLC, you, you, you look at that, That's a huge, a vast lake, and within a short amount of time, we, collectively, <laughs> uh, it was the Soviets, but we uh, we dried that thing up.
1: Yeah, we certainly did. And and the Soviets actually recognized that before they instituted the, the projects. And they did get a lot of value out of developing that water. There's cotton. There's all sorts of valuable crops for, for people in the region. What was – well, people realized that they would lose the fisheries, Except in this little remnant lake that they recovered, so they, they recognized those things. What they didn't recognize were some of the environmental costs and the health costs from uh, from the dust that uh, generated from the lake bed.
0: So tell me about that. We could revisit that a little bit later in the program as well. Um, there there are consequences from drawing up the lake.
1: Yeah, certainly these uh, the lake beds when they're exposed. Uh, depending on the characteristics of, you know, of the soils that are exposed or how much salt is covering the, that lake bed. Uh, when the wind kicks up, uh, it can uh, generate a, a lot of dust uh, and, uh, and transport it at hundreds or, at some cases, even thousands of miles. So this has been d- documented probably best for the Aral. And another lake in Southern California, much smaller system, one that fits conveniently in the size of the Bear River Bay uh, of, of Great Salt Lake uh, is a lake system called Owens Lake, and that was dried up in the 40s uh, by uh, water development to take water to uh, Los Angeles. So the water that came off the east side of the Sierra Nevada Mountains was was developed, transported in canals, uh, and as a consequence, Owens Lake uh, dried dried up. Um, the uh, population around there is tiny, uh 30,000 people compared to the two and a half, three million 3 million people we have around the Great Salt Lake. But these people are around Owens Lake, uh, the community of Bishop is the largest small community there, uh, have reportedly have lo- much higher incidence of asthma. And uh, they've taken the case to court and, and won, and, and uh, the city of Los Angeles is going to be spending over the next 20 years about $3 billion to uh, mitigate the, the, those dust effects, so, and, which includes putting more water back in on the lake bed. Not enough to bring the lake back, uh, but to wet it so that the dust, dust isn't generated.
0: Um, c- could, um, of course, uh, Wilson Lake—that water is diverted for the population elsewhere, and um, probably continue to be diverted. Uh, s- something like the Aral Sea could—could could this those sources of water be routed into the lake again? Could could such a lake be restored?
1: Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, water flows downhill, and if you stop using it, uh, it's going to be 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 flowing back into the lakes. In a lot of cases, a lot of efforts are being made to improve the efficiency of, of water use for agriculture and other uses, uh, and and uh, that certainly can help. Uh, so, uh, flood irrigation, for example. Uh, is very costly in terms of water loss. So uh, there, people are turning to different types of spray, spray irrigation. Or in case of uh, some countries, Israel, a prominent example, uh, drip irrigation. And, you know, we, we hear about that locally in that people talk about changing your, your lawns to xeriscaping uh, them. And then putting in drip irrigation that just uses a fraction of the water, but that's most important if, if you're talking about trying to recover a lake uh, uh, in the agricultural sector because that's where most of the water loss occurs.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and, and this was a this was a conscious choice, right? The the Soviets wanted to develop a cotton industry and, and other industries, and they knew they were going to dry up the lake.
1: Uh, correct. Uh, yeah.
0: So, but it's a it's an ongoing continuous choice as well right because we well, you could either or but but you would then what devastate these industries that are depending on the on the water if you were to fill up the lake again
1: uh well that depends i mean if you, you largely you would talk about radical shifts in the type of agriculture so some crops need a lot of a lot of water uh and aren't really amenable to things like uh, drip irrigation so you in most cases, you're likely talking about changing what crops you actually are growing uh, and, uh, and then putting in drip irrigation, and you can save probably 90% of the water. I'm, I'm not an agriculture irrigation expert. I don't know the exact values, but you can have huge, huge savings. Uh, but it, it, it's a big change in the culture. The other thing that's driving a lot of the problems that we can say, oh, we you know, put water back in the lake and in some cases, you know, we can do that without huge effects. But the under, one of the underlying driving problems is increase in world population and, and the need for more food. And uh, when you're growing more food, you need, that, you need water for that. So in the long, long term, we really need to get a co- a control on, on our population on the planet. Uh, and that's not an easy task to, either in a long term. You really need a long term perspective
0: let's take a break when we come back we'll talk more about the great salt lake um, it's the largest saline lake in the western hemisphere right and um it shapes so much of what utah is but i'm going to ask a question when we come back you know it's a devil's advocate question but a real question as well what good is the lake what is it <laughs> what does it do um we've already mentioned birds and and uh, and shrimp it was interesting i was reading um I can't remember who it was at Utah State University had done a survey, uh, asked people about the lake, you know, the lake versus the water that flows into it. And um, a majority said, yeah, we need to preserve the lake. But a minority uh, said, no, let's use up that water. You know, that was a sentiment you expressed, uh, or and not, not you yourself, but you've heard expressed.
1: Right. That's certainly the case. I mean, we get a lot of value out, out of that water that's uh, – goes into agriculture. In a lot of cases, the values, you could debate it. Uh, do, do we need uh, an acre of lawn around some of the homes I see here in Cache Valley that needs irrigation all uh, constantly? Uh, how, how much value do we really get for that lawn? And in, in the Cache agriculture, most of the water uh, that would have flown to the Great Salt Lake uh, uh, grows alfalfa, which uh, is then fed to to cattle and uh, other animals. And so uh, that's not a very efficient production uh, method. And so we could be looking at other crops uh, and, and again, changing the culture and changing our uses of the water.
0: We'll talk more about the Great Salt Lake uh, following this break.
1: In researching her daughter's possible autism... this children's author made a startling discovery. The
0: only thing that kept coming up was autism spectrum disorder. And then I realized, you know, probably a couple hundred hours more
1: of research that, well, I was on the spectrum too. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason.
0: Tomorrow morning at 4 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the Great Salt Lake on the program today. Uh, the Great Salt Lake is, not to put too fine a point on it, drying up. Uh, we have Wayne Wurtzbaugh uh, with us. He's Professor Emeritus of Watershed Sciences at uh, Utah State University. has studied um, saline lakes, including uh, the Great Salt Lake. Now, is that, Professor Wurtzbaugh, is, is that hyperbole? Is are we running to the hills? Is our hair on fire here? Should we, should we under should we state that in a less hyperbolic way, or is the Great Salt Lake drying up?
1: Well, uh, as we said earlier in the program, uh, you know we've lost about uh, close to fifty percent of the volume in the area. Uh, now that varies a lot from year to year. I, I just checked uh, before coming here, and the, the lake's going to come up about three and a half feet or maybe even four feet this year because we had a very large snowpack and a lot of runoff. And so all these fluctuations uh, make it actually hard uh, to determine, uh, you know, what's happening to the lake. And before we did this study that we published a few years ago, you know, people would say, oh, the lake goes up and down it's wet years and – I was around and maybe some of the listeners were around when the lake was flooding and threatened the airport and was, went over Interstate 80 at times when the wind blew that way. So these big fluctuations do make it hard to determine things. But uh, this analysis that was uh, done by the Division of Water Resources and then we published with a number of authors from here, here at Utah State – uh, estimated that the lake is because of water development has dropped about 11 11 feet on average we still have these big ups and downs but uh, 11 feet is a lot and the, the lake depth is when it's relatively full about th- 35 feet something like that sometimes 40 feet so 11 feet is a big big chunk of it and and why we're concerned about it uh, if we were to stop here we would still have a pretty functional lake. we have brine shrimp we have industries that rely on it we have a lot of recreation around it uh, but there as you know there's a lot of talk about continually developing uh, the Bear river for for water resources and the Bear River is the biggest source of water for the lake and uh, uh, we talk about uh, developing, 220,000 acre feet of water for um, uh, Utah and that's a pretty big chunk of water and that might drop the lake another a foot and a half two feet something like that Uh, but uh, Idaho and Wyoming also have rights if you will from something called the Bear River Compact uh, to some of that water and so if uh, Idaho in particular were to develop their water. We're talking to dropping the lake another uh, uh, two or three feet. And so we keep uh, little by little bits and pieces. Each little development project doesn't have that much effect, but it's kind of a death by a thousand cuts. And then as mm-hmm. we look to the future and also have to worry some about climate change and and the predictions are that less water will be coming into the lake uh, as as the climate warms. Um, yeah, we, we do have a big long-term uh, problem on our hands. And, and you know, the legislature uh, dedicated, uh, you know, forget the value, $30, $40 million for water development a couple of years ago. That's both for St. George and Colorado River water, but also Bear River uh, water development. Uh, people are are looking at, at developing that for largely for increasing, uh, you know, population around the Wasatch Front.
0: Uh, if you if you look at a map of who owns in the, you know all this the land surrounding all this water Bear River and 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 such, it, it's a patchwork. You know, you have private, you have federal, you have state. Um, just an illustration, a visual illustration, if you would look at that, of the, that everybody's going to have to work together. It's going to be uh, not a simple solution.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not a simple solution. People certainly want that water, or water law uh, in the West is such that once you're appropriated water, uh, you have the right to l- use it. And in fact, if you don't use it, you can lose that that right. So our laws really need to be uh, changed and allow people – for example, uh, I've been to conference lately and people were talking about water banking. And, and that is allowing people essentially to sell their water to, to somebody else for a different use. And that use could be for the Great Salt Lake. Um, and so uh, – but right now our laws are, are kind of restricting what, what we – can do even if we if we do want to save water for the lake,
0: and there might be uh, a need to change the laws uh, regarding water rights because I think right now, if you you if you over time allow your water to that you have rights to to flow downstream, uh, you could lose that. I believe
1: right? That that's correct, and so people tend to use it whether you know and do do some extra irrigation whether they really need it or not. Uh, and so, uh, it's a big, big problem when those laws are entrenched. But they're beginning to be changed. Uh, Idaho, for example, has uh, instituted this water water banking uh, system, and so you can get pretty good transfer and put the water to, to the best use. So, if, if you know, as a society we deem the best use is watering lawns, I'm not sure I agree with that. But a lot of people um, might want it. Uh, we could transfer those water rights from, uh, from uh, uh, a rancher who has alfalfa to uh, somebody, uh, a city, who wants to use that water for uh, developing uh, their city.
0: Parenthetically, I think we need to have a compact with our neighbors. That's where the pressure comes, right? It's the, it's the peer pressure. <laughs> My lawn gets a little less green. I'm going to get looked down uh, down the nose of, uh, by the neighbor, right?
1: Yeah. And in fact, which city? I forgot. It was in the news recently. I probably heard it on NPR. In fact, that as as some cities require a certain amount of lawn, uh, you know, like I think it was 60 percent of the landscaping had to be lawn. And this was to stop things like people piling automobiles in their right. front yards and so forth <laughs> but still the laws is in effect and is being changed fortunately but it requires you know water use that maybe people don't even want but they're required to do and then as you say you have uh, you know this competition to make my my lawn look better than your lawn and mm-hmm. as i came into school this morning and, and left there were even people in my neighborhood uh, irrigating their lawns and we uh, were on a uh, Canal system water, uh, and it's not even a watering day, but they were they were still <laughs> keeping things green.
0: Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, I want to get to this question: what's what's the lake good for? What's uh, why the lake right uh, reduced by fifty percent? Um, you know, you you look at those photos of the RLC, and I I just get sick to my stomach. That's my reaction. I think it'd be the reaction of a lot of people. On the other hand, if if you're benefiting from one of those industries, um, you know, and, and in that survey there were some people who said, let's use it all up. And So I want to get to that. And maybe a, a place to get in is um, in some of these bays, Farmington Bay and and other bays, I think the, the water level has dropped even further, right? And so maybe a precursor to what the whole lake might look like.
1: Yeah, it isn't so much that the water has dropped. Further, but these are real shallow bays. So, okay, uh, that so you drop the lake, uh, the overall lake a little bit, and as I said, we're, we've lost about close to fifty percent of it. But uh, Bear River Bay uh, in the in the summer, about ninety percent of it is dried out, and uh, uh, Farmington Bay is similar. And that's just because they're so shallow. So they're the first first areas to to be exposed. Uh, and so, and those are important areas, uh, for, particularly for birds, because they're they're essentially sort of estuaries. That's where uh, the rivers come in. Uh, Bear River comes into Bear River Bay, and uh, Jordan River, and some creeks come into Farmington Bay. So they're not as salty, and they and they have gradients in, in salt content. So the more diversity in the types of uh, in uh, organisms that can grow there, so uh, they're extremely important for birds. And so a lot of our bird use uh, occurs in those two bays. And that, and uh, as you say, uh, a lot of that's being dried up and being impacted disproportionately uh, compared to the rest of the lake.
0: And I was reading that um, islands are very important, and and, uh, lake level dropping in some areas, and they're now land bridges to islands, and that's, you might think, in fact, I did when I was reading the article, um, so what, but (laughs) there's important so what.
1: Yeah, it's important because a lot of the birds use those islands for nesting because predators can't get out there, the coyotes, the foxes, and so forth, Uh, and so they're good safe havens for or reproducing your young. And the the classic case uh, is uh, Gunnison Island up in the north arm of the Great Salt Lake, uh, which is uh, one of the more important pelican nesting areas in in the western U.S. And there's uh, several thousand pelicans that nest out there. Um, And a couple of years ago when the lake reached its its lowest level ever, uh, uh, predators could get out, walk out on the land bridge, and get to the island. Now it was a long distance, uh, maybe 10, 15 miles. They would have to walk, so not not many predators got out there. And so the pelican population still still thriving. And the, and the lake has come up a bit since then as well. So uh, there's no longer a land bridge. But if we continue to drop drop it, there will be a a permanent, if you will, land bridge, and we could lose that that nesting area for the pelicans. And, and there's other birds, the gulls and so forth that have used other areas for nesting and they've been exposed to.
0: This is a very important stopping point for, I don't know, hundreds, uh, maybe more than that of species of birds, right? And, and hundreds of thousands of, of, of birds come through.
1: Yeah. Uh, the estimate is something like a couple million birds a year use the Great Salt Lake uh, the lake is, well, very productive in that when you have water coming into a lake, that water brings in nutrients, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, these things that come naturally out of our environment, but are augmented by fertilization, that sort of thing. But the, those nutrients make the lake very productive. So it grows a lot of invertebrate organisms. Brine shrimp is the prominent example, but gnats and these things. So there's a lot of bird food in there, and particularly around the wetlands, around the margins of the lake. And so it's a real magnet for, for birds coming through. So you have waterfowl uh, in, in high numbers, uh, shorebirds, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of shorebirds that come through and use the, the, the habitat and the high productivity to, to feed and, and fatten up. Uh, one of our birds, uh, ear grebe, comes through, and I, in a uh, couple months it's here uh, on migrating, it, uh, it, put, it puts on about 50% more weight because it, it feeds on brine shrimp and other things. and uh, <laughs> um, So it's, they're extremely important that way. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, we've dried up wetlands uh, throughout the country and particularly in the west. And so the remaining wetlands that we have around the margin of places like the Great Salt Lake become all that much more important because others have been dried up.
0: You just joined us. We're talking with Wayne Wordspaugh, Professor Mertis, uh, Utah State University Watershed Sciences. And we're talking about the Great Salt Lake, which uh, is, well, it's shrinking. And so we're talking about uh, the problems that causes and possible uh, solutions so this is a very important uh, migratory. You, you said the eard the grebe uh, puts on how, mu- how much?
1: About 50%, 50%. 50%,
0: which is important to continue the journey, right? Right, exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so some of the things that might be annoying to you and me if we go visit, like the flies, the gnats, that's important to the birds.
1: Right. Uh, the uh, one that when you, if you go out in Antelope Island or other areas around the lake in the summer, July and August, there'll be hundreds of thousands of brine flies that are around, particularly right around the shoreline. Fortunately, they're not a biting fly. Uh, but if you uh, have a phobia to insects, they can be pretty annoying because they do land on you and tickle and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, those adult flies that bother the humans are important for a lot of birds that feed on the adults. And then you have other birds that... Um, uh, that uh, dive down and feed on the larvae of these insects that are uh, growing on the bottom of the lake. Uh, so that's one important source. In the estuaries that we mentioned earlier, Farmington Bay and, and Bear River Bay, uh, you have different species of gnats. Uh, and you ha- in some cases, you have some biting flies that also emerge. So mm-hmm. if you go to Antelope Island at the wrong time of the year or <laughs> early in the spring, you can wind up with... Uh, uh getting bitten quite a bit so you have to do time time your visits carefully there
0: so i was, I was going to ask you so early spring that's the wrong time of year if you don't want if you if you don't want you know if you yeah, want but, gnats go then but uh.
1: yeah so now again there's a lot of these gnats that don't bite and you can look at them they, I, I find them fascinating some of the the larger gnats uh, a group called chironomids uh, they uh have these mating swarms that are, oh, 10, 15 feet high. And as you, uh, may, some of the listeners may have uh, seen them. And when they drive out the causeway to Antelope Island, there'll be dozens or hundreds of these swarms of gnats. And those are not not biting gnats, but uh, other, other, other times of the year. And particularly about now, really, is a, a time where you can, you can get a fair number of bites. And in some cases, there's mosquitoes as well.
0: Island is wonderful. I'd recommend that to anybody. You've in this article I was reading, you you took your uh, some students up to the the ridge, I guess highest point in the Island. That must be for a, a wonderful vantage point.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a great place, and I've often taken visitors up there. I had a group from Iran a few years ago uh, that have a this lake Ormea that's that's drying up there, and they they came out here to gained some knowledge from us that have worked on the lake and in the case you mentioned we take some of our our graduate students uh, when they first arrive, our new cohort of graduate students out to the lake and uh, we didn't get up to the highest highest point uh, which is a great wonderful hike if you have the time but it's a two or three hour hike Uh, but you can uh, go up to Buffalo Point uh, and in a 15-20 minute walk get a really nice vantage point Looking uh, both to the west and seeing all of Gilbert Bay, and if you look hard or have binoculars, you can see up across the railway causeway to Gunnison, Gunnison Bay. Or you turn to the east and you can see Farmington Bay and then the Wasatch Front and the mountains there. It's, it's a really beautiful spot, uh, and I highly recommend uh, your listeners to go visit there and, and do that very short hike to get the great vantage point.
0: Now, some visitors come from the outside and wonder, why in the wide world did I (laughs) I come? Someplace you have that rotten egg smell. You got the flies and gnats. um, The lake is very salty. Um, Where does that smell come from, by the way?
1: Yeah, so that smell is often referred to as lake stink. Um, And um, it's really not the main lake that's probably causing that problem so uh, we have in Farmington Bay to a certain extent and in Gilbert Bay something that's called the deep brine layer and it's it's a consequence of building causeways and kind of a peculiar hydrology uh, that puts a stagnant layer of water down on the bottom of of the either Farmington Bay or, or Gilbert Bay and the uh, detrital material, the fecal material from brine shrimp or the algae that are in the lake the sediment and fall into that layer and decompose. And when they decompose, the bacteria uh, use up all the oxygen. And then you get it's called reducing conditions uh, chemical term, and it allows the sulf- sulfate in the lake to be turned into hydrogen sulfide. And that hydrogen sulfide has the uh, rotten egg smell. Hmm. And so if we go out and put one of our sampling apparatuses down into that layer, bring that water up into the boat to, you know, put it in bottles for chemical measurements or whatever, uh, people want to jump out of the boat almost Mm, because it's pretty strong. (laughs) The the layer in Gilbert Bay is uh, down about uh, 20 feet, something like that. And so it's hard for any of that hydrogen sulfide, which can form a gas, uh, to to escape. Uh, but in Farmington Bay, uh, the layer's just down about uh, four or five feet. And so when you get a windstorm, uh, it there's enough turbulence, enough energy to bring some of that water to the surface, and uh, re- release that smell. And so it has. Big effects, particularly on you know people downwind uh, in in Salt Lake City in that area. Hmm. We published uh, a, a, a piece in the Friends of Great Salt Lake newsletter a number of years ago. Uh, the Great Salt Lake doesn't stink, but Farmington Bay does. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another problem with Farmington Bay is being in close proximity to Davis County and, and Salt Lake about 50% of the water going into Farmington Bay is treated uh, sewage water, you know, Mm -hmm. treated Mm -hmm. wastewater. And that has really high nutrients in it, nitrogen and phosphorus that I mentioned earlier. And so you get a a huge amount of production of algae. And, in fact, uh, and also cyanobacteria. Cyanobacteria, maybe some of your listeners, uh, has been in the news but uh, in regard to uh, Utah Lake that's uh, have increasing blooms of these things and they they produce cyanotoxins that are, are, can be quite toxic to humans. so that's a big concern. The cyanotoxins in Farmington Bay are about 30 40 times higher than in Utah Lake. So, uh, uh, but we don't have as much recreation in Farmington Bay as in, in Utah Lake, so it's somewhat of a different situation.
0: So these, these blooms, uh, you, you can, I mean, they look kind of pretty, you know, <laughs> but don't, you know, don't swim into that. Um, and that's, after a break, let's talk about the brine shrimp. Because so the brine shrimp counteract that, right? Uh, they? To
1: a certain degree, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And an interesting animal in and of itself, and it's become a big industry, or, it is. In Utah. Very big industry. Uh, let's talk about that and, and, uh, and more and uh, maybe health effects for those areas that, of the lake that um, have dried out or will dry out. Uh, more with Wayne Wurtzbaugh on the Great Salt Lake following this. On the next radio lab. A young child ripped from the arms of the only parents she's ever known. Turned over to the Native American biological father she has never met. A custody battle over a little girl.
1: You're like, whoa, how can this possibly be okay?
0: That threatens the future of hundreds of Native nations. His child being given up for adoption without his knowledge.
1: There goes India law. There were literally communities where there were no children.
0: That's on the next radio lab. This morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll follow the influence of jazz from its homeland in the USA to unexpected locations like New Zealand and Slovenia, and travel back to its roots in Africa. Mm-hmm. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Jazz Around the World, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the Great Salt Lake. It's the largest saline lake in the Western Hemisphere. We've got it right here in uh, Utah to enjoy. And we have an expert with us, Wayne Wertzba. He is Professor Emeritus of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. We're talking about this uh, because it's interesting to talk about and also because the Great Salt Lake is slowly drying up. Um, and So how do you counteract that? That's one of the questions. Uh, so, uh, it occurs to me that uh, I led us into a, a kind of a discussion of, at least the implications being, why in the wide world would you go and recreate on the <laughs> near the lake? <laughs> the, the gnats, the flies, the rotten egg smell. L- let's begin this segment with, why would you want to? And, you know, this is a devil's advocate question. I, I love Antelope Island and love being there, but a, there are a lot of attractions.
1: Yeah, so... Now, one of the biggest attractions that we alluded to earlier is the birds, so that you have a, a lot in the bird-watching community that really enjoy going out around uh, Great Salt Lake and the adjoining wetlands and viewing birds. And so that's that's one of the uh, big values to the lake. You also have uh, waterfowl hunters that utilize, utilize the lake and the adjoining wetlands in the fall for, for hunting. Um, it's... It's unique to a certain extent because we don't have that many saline lakes around, and so uh, going out and waiting in the Great Salt Lake and looking at the brine shrimp in the water, and which are you know these invertebrates, and they're about a quarter of an inch long. Uh, We have invertebrates in that place, kind of similar roles in Bear Lake, for example, but they're so small, they're really kind of hard to see with the naked eye. So you have that some u- unique characteristics there. Uh, so uh, that recreational component is, is is quite valuable. Other values of the lake, uh, well, backing up, uh, about 10 years ago, a group estimated the economic value of the Great, great Salt Lake in a and it came out to be about 1.3 billion dollars. The biggest share of that is for mineral extraction. So we have Magnesium Corporation of America, Compass Minerals, uh, that uh, makes largely fertilizers. Others uh, people make titanium that they extract from the, the salts in the lake. So that's the uh, biggest component of that 1.3 billion. Uh, But uh, recreation was uh, not, uh, I think, the next largest component. And then one you mentioned was the uh, uh, brine shrimp. So these these brine shrimp uh, aren't harvested directly as the adults, uh, although they used to be for fish food for aquaria. Uh, But the big industry now, and it's about a $60 million a year industry, is to uh, harvest the cysts or the resting eggs of these uh, brine shrimp, and these are little or tiny little things, less than a millimeter, kind of fit uh, on a pinhead. Uh, a lot of those cysts float on on the surface of the lake, and so in the fall, uh, we have uh, dozens and dozens of boats that go out. Uh, they use spotter planes to uh, spot and find the uh, concentrations of these cysts, and then they go out and, and harvest those. Uh, and uh, take them back dry them out put them in cans and they're they're sold uh, worldwide and the great salt lake is the largest producer worldwide to to the aquaculture industry and the biggest component of that aquaculture industry are prawns and so probably I, i certainly know that prawns have got a lot more prominent in the market in the last decades and uh cheaper and so a lot of those will come from Indonesia or South America. And the baby prawns when uh, they are starting out need a high-energy, high-protein source of food. So these cysts that can sit on the shelves for years, um, if you put them in a salinity about like seawater, and in a, a couple of days uh, they hatch out into something called a nopuli, a tiny little invertebrate. Uh, about a millimeter long, and the, the prawns or other fin fish uh, will uh, uh, feed on those and, and grow quickly and get to a size uh, where they can make it in in the ponds. I was in Indonesia uh, a couple years ago just for a, a vacation, but when we would fly in and out of different um, coastal cities, you could see uh, thousands and thousands of acres of, of ponds uh, where they're growing these these prawns so that's a that's a very major industry there
0: Uh, now are these actual related to shrimp they're very small size but is this an action
1: taxonomically it's it's uh well fairly closely related if you look at the broad spectrum of Mm -hmm. you know human humans down to bacteria the Brine shrimp and the shrimp that you would have in the oceans are fairly closely related. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're crustaceans. Uh, they reproduce by producing these eggs. Uh, one interesting aspect of these eggs, I mentioned they can stay on the shelves for years in a dried state. Uh, we took a sediment core out of the bottom of the lake and sliced it up and found out the dates. And we took the eggs that had been deposited in those those cores, and uh, and hatched them out, and we hatched uh, brine shrimp eggs that were over 200 years old uh, in, in the lab. So they're wow. extremely resistant. Uh, and, <laughs>
0: actually, uh, actually hatched.
1: They hatched. Yeah. Wow.
0: wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and so that's the reason why this is uh, this is amazing fish food. So that's the reason for this, yeah, you know, sixty million dollar industry. Right. Know. Uh so I want to before we we have about oh, 5 minutes left um I want to get back to at the end talking about um you know solutions to reducing the diversion that flows into into the lake um is, is there is there a bullet point is is there something maybe I haven't asked you that's that would be very interesting to people about the about the lake
1: uh well it's beautiful place uh for her. Uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, you can go to certain places and and you won't see any any other people. And I didn't really enjoy going out on the lake and sampling. And you get not very far out from shore, and you, you feel a little bit like you're on a different planet. Mm-hmm. It's really mm-hmm. remote, and then, uh, a lot of people like that. I've had some graduate students that go out there and go, "Oh no, this this isn't the <laughs> place for me." So maybe it's not for everybody, but it, it is beautiful and. Antelope Island is one of the easiest access points to, to go view it. Another interesting place is the Spiral Jetty, a, mm-hmm. a land art yeah. project um, that was uh, built decades ago. Uh, and you go out uh, through, uh, to the north arm of the lake and, and it's, uh, there's some hills nearby and you can get up and uh, look down on the Spiral Jetty. Uh, that juts out into the lake. Right now, that uh, the, the spiral jetty is uh, on dry land because we dr- the lake is down mm, so interesting far. Interesting, interesting. Um, yeah. uh, other times, the water comes up around it. And so you can view it from the hills above, and then you can walk out on it, uh, uh, unless in real high-water years, it could be submerged. So that's a real interesting uh, place to, to visit. And if you haven't been out there... Uh, Highly recommend you, you mm-hmm. go visit there.
0: Maybe just take a, a minute on this. Um, we, we've made reference to it early in the program, but you, you might think, okay, so you know, so the lake—at least part of it—dries up, and you have exposed lake bed. That can be a potential problem, right? Dust storms with maybe not so good stuff in that in that dust.
1: Yeah, that's that's being studied right now, and uh, so. Fortunately, at least to date, the the lake bed, the huge amount of lake bed that's exposed doesn't produce as much dust as places like uh, Owens Lake. Uh, You have different soil characteristics. You have salt crusts. Uh, But if we dry things up, that salts may wash down into the bottom of the the basin and the remaining water, exposing more soils. And so perhaps we'll get more increasing dust. So we need to look at that. Uh, Farmington Bay right now doesn't have salt crust. And as we said earlier, a lot of of that bay has been dried up because it's so shallow. So a lot of our dust production comes out of the exposed sediments in Farmington Bay. The other concern, uh, as you alluded to, is that it's not just dust, but in Farmington Bay, we have these cyanotoxins from all the uh, cyanobacteria that have died on the shoreline there. Um, other parts of the lake, uh, well, in Farmington Bay as well, we have uh, quite a bit of heavy metals. There's a, uh, a lot of mercury in the sediments and copper and zinc and lead and some of these things. One of my colleagues, Janice Brainy, in the Watershed Sciences Department, is studying that right now, just how, how, how much cyanotoxin, how much uh, heavy metals like lead and zinc and mercury are in that dust. Uh, and people are worried about that, but uh, we really haven't – we don't have the data yet to determine whether we, we're going to have particularly bad dust or just regular bad dust.
0: Mm-hmm. And Wasatch Fund is particularly vulnerable because uh, – the area around the lake because a lot of people live there, exactly. unlike some other lakes. Uh, we just have about a minute left, and so we'll, we'll leave maybe for another program The the – surrounding water issues but let me just uh ask this question 30 seconds on this are you hopeful that that uh, the lake level drop can be arrested and
1: uh, as somewhat hopeful well, when i started working on the lake 30 years ago people didn't care much about it but now it's in the news a lot more a lot more people are aware of the problem and aware that our water use and potentially our growing water use will cause the lake to shrink even more one thing I, in closing I, I did an analysis or just pulled up some data and looked at water use in some other arid countries spain and portugal and greece and uh, i think i had seven of them and water use per person per capita in utah was two and a half times water use in those other countries and Israel uh, was the most conservative water user and our water use here in Utah is about seven times higher per person than what people use in Israel so we don't need so much water Uh, we can get by with a lot less and still have a highly functional society so I think if people recognize that and and want to want to save the lake uh, I think we can do it On the other hand, the Division of Water Resources is moving ahead with the Bear River water development. Likewise, uh, uh, Idaho water developers are looking at that water. So what will happen in the long term, I don't know. But I'm hopeful because people are paying more attention to the issue now.
0: Well, stay tuned. More to come on this, I'm sure. We've been talking with Wayne Wurtspa, Professor Emeritus uh, of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. Been talking about the Great Salt Lake. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Oh,
1: good. Well, thank you.